Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be back at Hope Works. I tell you, it does my heart good. Uh, as I approached the church last night, I got into town a little late last night, and um, it's been three or four years since I've been here, and uh, it's been a lot of places since um, those days, and uh, so I thought, well, I'll just drive and locate the church, and, and I tell you, this church is, I passed other churches, and, and, and but I tell you, when I approached Hope Works, there was just something that just drew me, and 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 it drew me that I felt that same thing this morning, and I was sharing it with with Pastor. Uh, they're just um, something about when I drove up to the church, you could just feel first of all the presence of the Lord. There was just such a presence of inviting you in, and I tell you, I feel so welcomed here. I got here this morning. Pastor Shane was running a little late, and I was greeted by so many wonderful folks. I got the grand tour. I tell you, you can get lost in this church. I tell you, I w- went downstairs and I came out of a room. I'm like, how do I get back upstairs? <laughs> so, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, it is good to be here. And I, I'm so thankful for Pastor Shane. And I thank you. And I look at Pastor Shane as uh, not only a brother in Christ, but I look at you as a friend, brother. And, and I've grown to really appreciate uh, uh, Shane and what he stands for and his love for ministry in this church. Like I said, it has been for about three or four years since I've been here. And I see a lot of new faces. I, I've seen a few that I recognize, but I do see a lot of new faces. Um, so, But I am so honored to be here. I can see God moving here at uh, Hope Works, and I know God is here today. And I just pray that um, I'm really not sure what you came to expect today. I know some of you have heard my testimony, have heard my story. And even though my story is one of of tragic and sadness, as you will hear today, but my prayer and hope this morning is not to share a sad, tragic story with you. Because when we leave this place today, I don't want you to walk away and say, that was the most saddest story I ever heard. Or, wow, that was so tragic. Or, I feel so sorry for that man. But I want you to walk away today with hope. I want you to know that there is a God in heaven and that he loves you so much. And you may be here today and you're facing a tragedy or, or just a storm in your life. I'm here to tell you this morning that God cares. And I, that's what I want you to see in my story. Because as I travel this country and I go to place to place, That's what I want to walk away. I want you to walk away today with that, knowing that God loves you and that he has a purpose uh, for your life. Since I I was here about three or four years ago, I've been to so many places and and seen God move in so many ways uh, through this ministry. Uh, Last time I was here, I think I shared with you that there was a lady in California who was writing the, the movie script, a transcript of my story, and we were trying to get it in the hands of uh, maybe some Christian producers, those who would be interested in promoting this, and first of all, glorify God. But I'm pr- proud to say that she submitted the, um, the script to the Dove Foundation, and they have promoted movies such as Fireproof, Facing the Giants, Courageous, a lot of wonderful movies. And we, won, we were awarded the Dove Foundation Award for movie script. So that's so exciting. And so we're just uh, sitting back and just allowing God to move. I, you know, with the story as, 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 as I have and you'll hear today, you can imagine that I get bombarded by media and different things. And I've turned down a lot of things over the last few years because I had one person from California that came and said, this is a great story, but before we can move forward with it, there's just too much God in it. There's just too much religion. And I said, I tell you, I, I told um, Ann Mount, the lady who wrote my movie script, I said, we can just pull the plug on this right now because I'm not interested. Because if it will not glorify my Lord and Savior, I don't want to do it. And so that's what I want to say today, that I didn't just come to share a sad story. It's not about me, it's all about him. But before I share my, my, my testimony and what God has laid on my heart, we'll share a little bit about my ministry for those of you who are not aware about my ministry. Uh, I started Across America Ministries about six, seven years ago, I guess, not long after the tragic loss of my wife and two sons. If you know the story and you were here last year, back on uh, March 1st, 2008, we were attacked in our home by my 16-year-old daughter's then um, boyfriend, 
he came in and shot my wife and I. Um, and then they, the two young men went up and murdered my two sons, Matthew and Tyler. With that, something like that, you can only imagine the despair, the anger, the depression. I mean, the list goes on and on, all the emotions. I went through so much anger. I was angry at those who came in and took my family. I was angry at my daughter, even though she didn't come in and actually do it, but she had knowledge, and she didn't warn us. She ran off, and I was angry at her, but I was angry at God. God, where were you when I needed you? And I felt God had left me. God, where are you? But in time, God began to speak to my heart, and I realized that even through tragedy, God has a plan, and that he can do great things. And he began to speak to my heart about sharing this story. Prior to losing my family, and prior to March 1st, 2008, I was a youth pastor at Miracle Faith Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. There I served with my wife, Penny. Penny was a good godly woman. Penny loved the Lord. Uh, she was very musically talented. She loved music. She played our church piano and keyboard. She also played in a gospel band, loved music. Wonderful woman. She gave me three beautiful children, Aaron, Matthew, and Tyler. Now, Aaron was a lot like her mother. She has a lot of musical talent, very smart, young, just a bright young lady with a bright future. Aaron was one of these kind of kids that other kids just gravitated to, uh, just just. I just knew God had great things for Aaron. But Aaron began to make some bad choices, as so many young people do, but begin to go down the wrong road. And, you know, and that's why I go into our public schools. I, I not only go into churches, I've been in hundreds of churches across America, uh, been, in, been overseas into Germany, Slovakia, and places like that, and jails and prisons and schools. And, and I try to talk to kids about making better choices because the choices you can make, that you make, can and will change you for the rest of your life. So I go into schools and I try to talk about those choices that young people make, try to steer them in the right direction. As I was trying to do that with my own daughter back then, Aaron began to make bad choices. And I'll talk more about Aaron in a moment. But I was also blessed with two sons, Matthew and Tyler. Matthew was 13 years old when he went on to be with the Lord. Now, Matthew, I always joke about this. We called Matthew, we called him Bubba. And let me tell you, he was a typical Texas Bubba. At 13 years old, my Bubba stood about 6'1", 6'2", probably weighed in about 220, 230, wore a size 14 shoe. Now, that's a big boy right there. Now, of course, you, you think about that and you look at me, and naturally you got that from me, right? You know, <laughs> He, was a, he got that from his grandfather, but Matthew Bubba was a big boy with a big heart. Very shy, very quiet young man, but very smart, very talented. He loved music. As a matter of fact, when he was about five or six years old, maybe younger, he said, Dad, would you teach me how to play the guitar? I can't play, certainly not as well as this, this man did earlier. I can f play a few notes on the guitar, and I can cheat a little bit with the capo, and and try to limp along with the guitar. But I said, son, I'm not that good. Well, let's get you lessons from a professional. No, Daddy, I want you to teach me how to play. Just, to just teach me what you know. So I set him down, began to show him what I knew on the guitar, which was very little. But to show you his, his God-given talent, at the age of his death, at, at the age of 13 years old, Matthew could play the guitar as good as any grown man I'd ever heard without ever having a lesson. That's a God-given talent. He was also talented in his writing, very smart young man. He said, when I, when I grow up, I want to be a writer. He, he inspired to, always wanted to write a book. Even at a young age, he, he loved poetry. He could write and just, even at a young age, very smart. As a matter of fact, he was my inspiration to write my book, Terror by Night. I have a copy on my table back there. I'm so sorry that I don't have any with me today. Uh, the publisher couldn't get any to me in time, so uh, you can go to Amazon.com or uh, some of your bookstores do carry it. I'm also working on a second book um, as well, but he was my inspiration to, to write that book. And as a matter of fact, I don't even like to read, and I wrote a book, so it just shows you God can use anybody. And I still struggle with reading. I'm struggling right now trying to get a second book launched, but uh, I just, I'm just ADD. I can't sit still, and, and my mind's always racing, just trying to sit down and get my thoughts together. But Matthew was quite different, very reserved, very quiet, very smart. But he was keeping a journal at school. I had no idea that he was doing this. And after I buried my family, one of his teachers came up and gave me this journal. 
And this journal means so much to me today. I have it locked up in my safe today, but I have a few copies of various journals with me. And I'll share some of those with you um, at the close of the service. I miss Matthew today. I think about him often. I also think about my other son, Tyler. Tyler was eight years old when he went on to be with the Lord. And what can I say about Tyler? He was just like his daddy. He was a little fireball. He was always into something, ADD. I tell you, if he was still here today and, and still eight years old, I promise his presence would be known. Uh, he was always into something. If something broke, something happened, you can rest assured that Tyler did it or he's right there instigating it. I, I share this story because it, it takes me back to when I was young. I was, I, I'm not sure how young I was, but I was sitting at the kitchen table, never forget it, and I'm having this conversation with my mother, and I really, I'm not sure what I had done that day, but I was a pretty rebellious young man, and I'm sure I was giving mama fits, and, and she looked towards me, and she said, son, you're going to have a boy one day, and I promise you he's going to be just like you, and you're going to get paid back for all the grief you've caused me through these years, and of course it goes in this ear and out the other. If you have children, you know they don't listen, or you, you think they don't listen, but they do, and so time goes on, and Years go by, I get married, and Aaron came along, good kid, no problem, up until she turned 16 years old. Here came Matthew, Bubba, good baby, good kid, never cried as a child, slept through the night, all through his grown-up years, never got it, hardly in any trouble, straight-A student, just totally opposite of me, of course. And, j and then here came Tyler. He came out, when he came out, he came out kicking and screaming, never slowed down. I love to share this story. I was at work one day, and I think I shared it the last time I was here for, for you, those of you who were here last a few years ago. I was at work one day, and, and this just kind of gives you an idea of his character. I was at work one day, and, and my wife's brother came by one afternoon before I got off, and he knocks on the door, and as soon as she opens the door, she, she can tell immediately something is wrong, I mean, just by the look of, on his face. And, and before she could spit out a word, her brother said, I don't mean to get little Tyler in trouble, really don't, but is he supposed to be up on the roof? And she said, the roof? And now you'd have to know Penny, she was afraid of her own shadow, everything scared her. And she goes running outside trying to see, find, why is Tyler up on the roof? Now, it was about five years old when he'd done this. I had this uh, extension ladder behind my workshop. At five years old, I can just see him today dragging that thing across the yard. And I don't know if you've ever worked one of these things. I had to get up on the, my roof the other day and blow off some leaves. And, and I'm working that ladder. I'm trying to get it extended, locked in place. I'm having fits, and my memory goes back to Tyler that day. But he managed to do that at five years old, and there he is up on top of the roof. And his mother comes running outside, and she sees him up there at the very top of the roof. There he is at five years old with his little arms crossed, and he's just looking down. And his mother gets to the top of that ladder. By the time she gets to the top, she's shaking and trembling, and she realizes, oh, no, I'm afraid of heights, <laughs> her number one fear. She looks down, at, and she tells her brother, you better not let go of that ladder. Hold on to that ladder. And she's shaking and trembling. She can barely get the words out as she looks up at Tyler up on that roof. And she said, son, what are you doing up on this roof? He said, oh, I'm just looking around, just looking around. She said, looking around, son, what could you possibly be looking for up on this roof as she's shaking and trembling? He looks down at her as quick-witted as he is, never missing a beat. He looked down at his mom, says, mama, I was looking for heaven. I was looking for heaven. That night at the dinner table, I... I said, son, why did you think you could get up on that? Why did you get up on that roof and, and you thought you could see heaven? And what were you thinking? You could have got hurt, son. He said, daddy, I just thought if I could get up there on that roof and I could maybe see heaven and maybe see what Jesus looks like. Can I say this morning? He's not looking anymore. He's there with his mama, his brother. He's there with my mom and daddy. He's going on to be with the Lord. And guess what? I'll see him again one day. That's that blessed hope that I have, knowing I'll see my loved ones again. But if you have loved ones who's going on to be with the Lord, whether you've lost a grandparent, a mother or father, a husband or wife, or heaven forbid you lose a son or daughter, a child, you know that emptiness and that void and that hurt that's there. And even though I've gone on, it's still tough. I have my days where I just have to get alone and just have a good cry. And that's okay. That's okay. Just recently, last month, my son Tyler, who was 
eight years old, would have been 16 years old. Instead of having birthday cake and that birthday celebration with family and friends, I'm laying out flowers and little toys, a grim reminder of those days. But I'm here not to share gloom and doom. I'm here to share with you that no matter what, even through such a tragedy, that our God is real, that he can get you through any dark times. You don't always have to understand it. I don't understand it. But I'm here to say that God does love us, and he does have a purpose for our life. Before I share, get into my story and what God has laid on my heart, this morning as I'm in my hotel room preparing for this morning, I go back. Every time I get ready to share the story, I have to go back. And as I'm thinking about those days, I think about how hard it was. I think about how distraught, how broken I was. And I begin to think here and this morning, there's going to be someone who maybe you too have been broken. Maybe you, you have or maybe you are going through something right now that you just don't understand. You feel so broken, you feel that there's no way you could be put back together again. And I remember what that felt like. I felt so broken that I felt that my life could never be put back together again. And as I had that thought again, I began to think about that old familiar nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. Y'all remember that, Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You see, every story has a storyline. And Humpty Dumpty's story is simple. He fell off a wall and was so broken that he felt that no one could put him back together again. To some degree, Humpty Dumpty's story is your story. It's my story. You see, life just seems to have a way of bringing hurt and pain that leaves you so broken that you feel that no one could ever put you back together again. Some of you here this morning know the pain of divorce. Others of us know the pain of losing a loved one to the grave. Many know the pain of addictions. Teens know the uh, pain of feeling disconnected to their parents. Parents know the pain of, of, of the rebellious teenagers and how they have to let them go and make their own decisions only to suffer the consequences. Many know the pain of their life slowly changing due to health issues. All of us know the pain of loneliness. The truth is, there's not a person in this room this morning that does not have some pain in their heart and life. You see, pain and suffering is the story of our life. You, you'll hear the story this morning of how my life was so, so full of hurt and anger, a life that was so broken that only God could put me back together again. But one of the most encouraging storylines in the Bible is that God is looking to heal the hurting. He's looking to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted, as you listen to my story this morning, my prayer is that you not only hear my story, but more importantly, that you hear God's story. The story of the God in heaven that's been putting my life back together again. And as you listen to my story, be prepared. I pray that you will be inspired and encouraged and be open to the God in heaven to speak into your story. The reality is, no matter how much you are hurting, no matter how broken you are this morning, God is here to bind, begin to bind up and put together your life again. To borrow the words from the prophet Isaiah, the Lord has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. You know, as I share my story across this great land, many times I share it in many places in different ways. When I go into schools, uh, I, as I shared, I, I talk about choices. When I go into our prisons and jails, I, I talk about the choices that you make can affect you for the rest of your life. I've spoken about the many storms that come into our life, and maybe some of you are facing some storms in your life. But this morning, I just b b very briefly want to hit on the subject of forgiveness. I tell you, that's such an easy word, forgiveness. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? But I tell you, it's one of the hardest things to do, even as Christians. 
You know, when someone hurts you, someone's disappointed you, and especially someone's hurt one of your loved ones, it's only natural to want to get even. We want them to hurt because we hurt. You've hurt someone I love, so therefore you need to hurt. So I get that. And it was a long struggle to get to that place of forgiveness. I want to say right now, this morning, that forgiveness is not automatic. It's a process. It takes time. And sometimes when you've been hurt, whether someone's hurt you or you've lost a loved one, you're just mad at the world. I believe it's important to grieve. It's okay to be angry this morning. And I want to say it's not an easy road. But I want to say there is something about forgiveness. There is power in forgiveness, folks. There's a peace that comes with just letting it go and say, God, I can't do it anymore. God, I've tried, but God, I can't do this anymore. In the Bible, I don't have a lot of scripture this morning, but over in Romans chapter 12, in verse number 14, it starts out, it says, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. And if you go on down to verse 17, it says, uh, Recompense to no one, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all folks. If it be possible as much that lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I have to be honest with you this morning. After March 1st, 2008, I had a hard time with this. I had a hard time with verse 14. Bless them with persecute you. Bless and curse not. The last thing I wanted to do is say, God, bless those who came and take, took my family. God, would you just bless them and take care of them? No, I had so much anger. I wanted these two young men to die because they took my family. I remember my pastor coming to me during this process and said, he said, Brother Terry, we just need to pray for these young men. I said, pray for them. Why do I want to pray for them? Well, maybe they'll get right. Maybe they'll get saved and, and you know, they'll find remorse and get saved. And, and I said, no. I said, I, I could care less about that. I said, how dare they walk the same streets of gold as my family? I said, they can just go straight to hell. That's what I said. I, I had so much anger. I said, they deserve to go to hell, not heaven. But you see, there's not a one of us that deserves heaven. And God began to have to show me some things through this healing process. You know, I shared with you a moment ago that I've got a daughter named Erin. At 16 years old, bright, future, smart, young lady, very musically talented, has a beautiful singing voice. Beautiful singing voice. I knew God was going to do great things in Erin's life. But Erin began to make some bad decisions and bad choices. When she turned 16 years old, she, it's like she went from this good kid to just, just changing overnight. And if you have teenagers, you know how difficult just raising teenagers can be. But Erin suffered from low self-esteem. Uh, she thought she wasn't pretty. And if you look at back there on my table, you'll find pictures of Erin then and today. Beautiful young lady. But we try to encourage her that, you know, you're a beautiful young lady. God's got great things for you. But here came a young man by the name of Charlie Wilkinson. He began to tell her all the things she wanted to hear. Oh, how much I love you, and if you love me, you'll do this, you'll do that. Nobody loves you like I do. Your parents don't even love you like I do. He would later be diagnosed as a sociopath. He was very controlling. But to show you how fast one's life can spiral out of control, they'd only dated for about five, six months prior to this tragedy. We began to see little signs in my daughter. She began to, that smile went away. She no longer wanted to sing at church anymore. She no longer wanted to hang around her Christian friends. She began to gravitate what we call the bad crowd. She began to dress sloppy, could care less about her appearance. And, and she began to shut down. Aaron was always very open to us, but began to shut down. And I noticed something was going on in her life, but had no idea the direction she was going. As time goes on, we find out some things. We find out she's sneaking out of the house and she's drinking and going places she shouldn't. There are so many other things I found out after the tragedy. But it just broke our hearts that we're trying to raise Aaron and our children the way to go. And she's making all these bad decisions. And At first, I'm thinking, well, she's a teenager. You know, you've got to learn. You've got to make some choices. You, uh, she'll see him for what he is. Uh, she's been going through this little rebellious stage. She'll outgrow it. 
Um, I can remember being a rebellious young man. I'm a product of the 80s, and I don't know about you, brother, but I went through that phase with, with the long hair. I had hair halfway down my back, drove my mama crazy, and, and always on me about getting a haircut, and I just wanted to be this little rebel and fit in with the crowd, and I get it. I know what it's like. And I'm thinking, well, whatever this is, you know, I, I outgrew it. She'll outgrow it. But things begin to spiral out of control. And finally, we had to set Aaron down one night, and we had to step up as parents because she was going down the wrong road. And we said, Aaron, this, we love you, but this relationship, it's over. And she hung her head down low, began to cry. And she said, I've been wanting to break up with him, but I just didn't know how. I said, well, consider it done. Little did I know what was brewing behind the scenes because two days later on March 1st, 2008, at 3 a.m., her ex-boyfriend Charlie Wilkinson and his accomplice Charles Wade burst into our bedroom and began to open fire on my wife and I. I'll never forget that sound as long as I live. If you've been around guns or, or you're a hunter, you know how loud a gun can be. But could you imagine somebody standing over you in your home shooting you in the middle of the night? At first, I'm not sure who this is. It caught us off guard. I was in shock. I'm just hearing the gun blast, and, and boom, boom, boom. I'm thinking maybe a home invasion or a robbery. Had no idea this could be my daughter's ex-boyfriend coming in to get revenge, all because they broke up. I could just remember seeing the gun blast, and I could see the silhouette of someone, but not sure again who it was. And as I threw my arm out to shield my wife, I took the first shot in my upper arm and took a couple more shots in the chest. And up in my neck, lower neck area, and I was shot in the face, and that shot blew me out of bed, and I'm laying on the floor in a pool of blood. I'm thinking, who's this? Who's in my home, and where are they? And God, where are you when I need you? A few moments later, I could hear someone standing over me, breathing, and I could hear the reloading of a gun, and this young man would pump four bullets in my back and one in the back of my leg. They took turns shooting me 11 times total. This young man didn't even know us, his accomplice, Charles Wade. He came along because Charlie had offered him $2,000. He just came along to murder a family for $2,000. I remember coming, going in and out of consciousness, again, not knowing who's in my home. I'm trying to get up, but I can't. I'm too weak. I'm not sure if my wife is okay. I could hear footsteps going upstairs. I began to panic. Then I hear my 13-year-old son, Matthew, the one we call Bubba. He began to cry out, no, no, Charlie, no. Why are you doing this? And the reality began to set in. I realized that's who I just saw moments earlier in my bedroom. I heard the gunshots. I heard Matthew being shot. I collapsed and went out. Not sure how long I was unconscious, but when I woke up, I thought I was dreaming. This was a nightmare. Certainly this didn't happen. But I, I could smell smoke, and I could feel the intense heat. And I realized quickly this isn't a dream. This just happened. Not only did they come in and attack my family, but they set our house on fire trying to cover the crime. I finally managed to get to my feet, and, and I'm trying to scan the room. I can't find my wife anywhere. I'm thinking, I've got to get upstairs to my children. As I go through the hallway trying to get upstairs, I'm just, the house is just totally engulfed at this time. There was no way to get upstairs. I was forced back into the bedroom. I climbed over the bed trying to get to the other side where the master bathroom was. And as I landed on the floor there, I landed beside my wife. One look at her, I knew she was gone. You know, you're getting a different version this morning at church, but I tell you, it's more of a lighter tone, cause I, but I tell you, when I go into our schools and prisons, I get a different version than what you're getting this morning. I get more real, more graphic, because I want our students to see what can happen when you make wrong choices. I want our inmates to see the impact it has on its victims. But without going into too great a detail, I'll just say I knew she was gone. Not only did they come in with guns, but they came in with this samurai sword. There was no way to get her out, no way to get to my children. I was forced out of the bedroom, the bathroom there. There I landed on the ground, and I'm thinking, I've got to get help. I think reality really hadn't set in yet. I guess it was just the shock that I'm in. I'm thinking, if I can just get help, somehow we can fix this and put this back together. Everything's going to be okay. I began to make my way to my neighbor's house. We lived on 20 acres out in a, a little rural East Texas town called Alba, Texas. And our closest neighbors were the Gastons. I lived about 400 yards up the hill. I couldn't see their house, but I knew the direction I needed to go. And, and I can remember just taking a few steps, and I would collapse, and I, I fell down, and I remember just crawling and inching my way to my neighbors. And I would stand up, and only to take a few steps and collapse again. I would crawl, and just trying to get help. 
I stood up one time, and I, I guess I just forgot it was even there. It was pitch dark, and I fell about 12 feet down into a creek bottom. Luckily, it hadn't been raining. It was only about a foot of water. When it usually rains, it, it's like a roaring river through there. I would have certainly have drowned for sure. How I got out on the other side is just by the grace of God. But when I got out on the other side, I laid there on the ground, and I looked back at my burning house, and reality began to set in. They're all gone. There's nothing I can do to bring them back. I said, God, just let me die as I leaned up against that tree. God, I, everything that's most precious to me is in that home. Everything worth living for is in that home. God, just let me die. But I felt the hand of God saying, you need to get up, and you need to keep moving. And I want to encourage you this morning, whatever you may be facing, don't quit. Don't just sit down. Get up, and you keep moving. And I remember just standing there holding on to that tree. I'd lost a lot of blood. I was shaking. I was in shock. And, and I remember I, I just knew I didn't have the strength to go on anymore. And I began to cry out to God, God, just let me live long enough to make it to my neighbors. God, just let me make it so I can tell them who did this, and then you can take me. God, I don't want to die right here because they, never, they may never find out who did this. I'm the only survivor, I thought, at the time. I thought my daughter Erin had, had been murdered as well. But as soon as I cried out to God, I saw a light from a distance. Never saw that light there before. I remember being on a, I went on a fishing trip with a buddy of mine months after the tragedy. And I talked, spoke, spoke to the detectives about different things, but I never really shared this part of the story. And as I'm sharing my story, I go into depth with my friend. We're out there on his boat fishing, and he's trying to get my mind off things. But I go back to that night, and I begin to share with him what I'm sharing with you about seeing that light. And he looked at me and he said, brother, that's the gospel in a nutshell. I said, what are you talking about? He said, see, there you were in the middle between a flame and a light. He said, you were at the crossroads. You, had, you were at the place of decision. He said, you could have sat there and died. If you would have went back to the flames, you, you certainly would have died. Or you, could have, you went to that light. He said, that light is Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that light is Jesus Christ. Maybe you're there in the middle. You, maybe you're going through something right now you just don't understand. Listen, you may say, but God, you know, how can he bless me? How can he save me? You just don't know what I've done. I've done drugs. I've done this. You just don't know the past I have. Listen, God doesn't care about your past. He just cares about where you're going. And one thing I remembered about that night when I saw that light, I never looked back again. My eyes stayed focused on that light. I want to say this morning, don't focus on your past. Look to your future. And that future is Jesus Christ. I made it to that light. I collapsed. They called 911. They were in shock to see me that way, of course. And they were trying to land a helicopter in my, in my pasture out there. And um, they said they couldn't land it because it was too foggy. They said, you've got to get him out by ambulance now. And as they're, pre they're prepping me and they're preparing me to go into the ambulance, all I had on that night was a pajama bottoms, a, a white T-shirt, which was now solid red from blood, and one sock. They said they never found that other sock. I must have lost it in the house and it burnt. But, but as they're loading me into that ambulance, they cut those clothes off of me. And I'm just as naked as the day I'm born. I don't own a thing in this world. I've lost my house. They burnt my house down. I've lost all my worldly possessions, my family even the clothes on my back. And as I'm going to the hospital, I can hear the sirens in the distance as I feel like I'm just fading in and out, and I'm just begging God to let me die. I get there to the hospital. It's a chaotic scene. They're rushing. They're working on me. I can hear doctors and nurses talking in the background. Someone says he's lost a lot of blood. I'm not sure if he's going to make it. We're hearing things like this. But as I'm hearing the words, I'm telling myself, God, don't let me make it. God, just let me die right here. I don't want to live. I can hear them saying, we've got, to get him in the we've got to get him in the operating room quickly. My sister would later tell me they took her and my brother-in-law into a room and said, we've got to tell you, your brother's in critical condition. He may not make it. We're prepping him for surgery now. But I'm just begging God to let me die. But before they sent me into surgery, they came to me and said, we found your daughter, Erin. She's alive. And when I heard that, I had hope, something to live for. I began to fight, but that hope would be short-lived because not long after I found out that she was alive, they came to me and told me that Aaron had been involved and she was being charged with murder. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I remember just yanking the IVs out of my arms, tubes out of my nose. I began to scream, no, not Aaron. They had to literally strap me to the bed to control me. As they're, more, they're pumping that morphine and drugs back into my body to calm me down, as I'm drifting off to sleep, God, don't let me survive that operating. Don't let me leave. Don't, just, just let me die on that operating table. Of course, I survived, as you can see. 
I spent about a week or two in the hot week and a half in the hospital. During that time, I began to get so angry, and all that depression began to set in. And, and I knew that when I left that hospital, I had to bury a wife and two sons. Not only that, I had a daughter in jail facing murder charges. How am I going to get through this? I remember that nurse coming in, Mr. Caffey, we're going to send you home. There's nothing more we can do for you. They said, we're going to send you home on outpatient physical therapy. We're not sure if you'll ever be able to use that arm. My right arm had no feeling from, it was just completely dead. Today, I have no feeling from my elbow to my fingertips, but thank God I can still use it and grip. But I was hearing those words thinking, I could care less if I even had an arm. I could care less about physical therapy because I'm going to go, when I get out of this hospital, it's what I'm telling myself, I'm going to bury my family, and then I'm going to go back to the property, and I'm going to take my life, and I'm going to join them. We get to my sister's house, and my, right, my left arm is a, uh, I'm carrying this cardboard box, and my right arm's in a sling, and I'm bruised and battered. I'm stitched up and just very sore, and, and everything I own is in that little cardboard box. As I go up her steps, I look, and every, my life is in that box. I sit down on her couch. She had me a place prepared in her living room, and I set my little box down, and I begin to look around and feel on the couch and look around, and she said, is everything okay? Do you need anything? I said, you realize just a week ago I had a wife and children and a home, and now it's all gone, and everything I own is in that cardboard box. Night after night, I'd look at that cardboard box, and there was a Bible in there a friend had given me at the hospital before I was discharged. And I took that Bible and I set it on the coffee table. Night after night, I would look at that Bible. The more I looked at that Bible, the more angry I'd get. To one night, I couldn't stand it anymore. I, it was, I guess it was two or three days after I buried my family. I took a pillow from her sofa, and I threw it at that Bible and knocked it to the floor. I said, God, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with life. I'm done with everything. And I get up, and it's about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I guess. And my plan is to leave and go back to my property and take my life. I didn't leave a note behind. I didn't want my sister or anybody to try to stop me. And when I get up to go to her front door, I look, that Bible is laying on the floor where I had knocked it off with a pillow. And it's opened up, I noticed, as I walked by. And when I looked, by, looked at it, I noticed it was opened up to the book of Job. I think God was trying to tell me something. But I just kind of nudged it out of the way, and I wasn't going to pay any attention to that. I get to my property. I walk up, and I stand where... My house, two-story cabin in the woods once stood, is now just a heap of ashes on the ground. And I look at what used to be my life, and I'm angry, and I said, God, why? God, why? And I, got, and I stood right in the middle of those ashes. The ashes were under my feet. My whole life were just nothing but ashes. And, I, and right before I was ready to take my life, I cried out one more time. I said, God, why did you have to take my family? God, why did you leave me? Why didn't you take me, but why did you have to take my family? And just as I said that, just as I'm about, about ready to check out of this life, God showed up. But he showed up in the most unusual way that day. He showed up in the form of a piece of paper. This is a copy of the original. I have the original locked up at home. But as you can see, it's been through the fire. It's, it's burnt. And, just, and, I, and I just seen this little paper just flapping in the wind. And I reached over there and I just picked it up. And when I read that first line, I knew God cared about me. I just asked a question, God, why'd you take my family? And this page says, I couldn't understand why you take my family and leave me behind to struggle along without them. And I guess I may never totally understand that part of it. But I do believe you're sovereign and that you're in control was the first paragraph. I fell to my knees and fell on those ashes and began to cry out to God because I knew God cared about me. Words wouldn't even come. I just remember just moaning and groaning and just weeping and just, it was such anguish. And I, I remember somewhere over in the Bible where it says, even in our moanings and groanings, God knows what we're saying. You may not have the words this morning to really express to the Lord how you're hurting, but can I say this morning, He knows. He knows your pain. He knows your hurt. He knows your sorrow. And I said, God, this can't be the end of the deal here. God, what? there's got to be more to the story. God, why would you take them? There's, their deaths can't be in vain. For many months, God began to deal with my heart about forgiveness. You've got to forgive these two young men. I didn't come around to forgive my daughter. But I can't forgive these two young men. They murdered my family. There's no way. Months had gone by. I'd been through several trial hearings. and They were going to give these two boys the death penalty. 
And I said, sure, let them die. They deserve the death penalty. About four months after finding that page, I found out that page came from a book called Blindsight. I knew the author, James Pence. His daughter and my daughter were best friends. James Pence was my children's karate instructor. He was uh, an author, written several books. One of his latest was Blindside. He'd given a copy to my wife prior to the tragedy. That explained why it was in my home. I remember night after night laying in the bed, my wife would have her little lamp on, and she'd have a copy of Blindside out reading it. Oh, this is a good book. you got to read this. I said, what's it about? You just have to read it. What's it about? You just have to read it. And she knew I didn't like to read. I said, let me see that thing. I took it, and I, I did this. There was no pictures in it, so I said, here, you have it back. So I had no clue. I said, and she never would tell me what the book was about. But I think there was a reason for that. I didn't need to know then. I found out it was about a man named Thomas. And Thomas lost a wife and two children, but an automobile accident. Here, I just lost a wife and two children. God went on to bless Thomas. Maybe God wants to bless me. Maybe God's got a purpose for my life. I found myself going to the court begging and pleading for these two young men that they would remove the death penalty and give them life. And the prosecutors, the attorney general from Austin, Texas, came down fighting against me. No, I'd write letters to the attorney general. Uh, I was protesting, give these boys life. To one day they called me into a little meeting, into a boardroom. I'll never forget it. Big round oval table. There they had the lawyers present. Each of the defendants had their own lawyers represented there that day. The local district attorney, uh, the AG's office, two representatives from the AG's office was there. Uh, the, the, everybody, the room was just full, detectives, everyone. And they began to say, why would you want to forgive these two young men? Why would you want to spare their life? They began to show the evidence again. This is what they did. They've confessed to this. And I said, you can put that away. But why would you want to forgive them? Why would you want to pardon them? And I said, because that's what Jesus did for me. Now you got to understand something. I'm not that highly educated. I'm just an old East Texas country boy. And I just got real with them that day. I'm in a room full of a lot higher educated people than I am. And I just begin to pour my heart out to them, and I begin to witness what God has done for me. And when I got through, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. The attorney general stood up, pushed the chair up against the table and said, Mr. Caffey, you've been through enough. You've made your point. We'll spare the boy's life. I'll never forget that day in the courtroom. First, they bring in a young lady by the name of Bobby Johnson. I didn't mention her a while ago. She was the girlfriend of Charles Way. She drove the getaway car that night. And when they brought Bobby Johnson in, they bring her and they stand her before the judge. And that judge looks at Bobby now she's 17, she was 16 at the time. A frightened 17-year-old girl standing before the judge. Why would you do this? Why would you participate? Why would you go along with such a thing? I was just trying to fit in, judge. I just wanted to be a part of the crowd is what she said that day. And all because she wanted to fit in and be a part of the crowd, they gave her 40 years and led her away. Next, one of the hardest scenes. Now they bring my daughter in. Aaron is shackled, and she's bound. You can hear the chains dragging across the courtroom floor. And I held Aaron's hand as that judge look, looks at Aaron, gives her two lives in a 25-year stacked on that. As they lead her away, they had to pull her from my arms. We're both weeping and crying for one another. Next, they bring in these two young men, Charlie Wilkerson and Charles Wade, the two young men that took my family. And I stood before these two young men and gave my victim impact statement. But I looked at these two young men, and I said... I refuse to be bitter. I refuse to let this make me angry. And I said, I want to say today in front of this, this, this court and everyone here, I want to say that I love you and I forgive you. I tell you, that was a hard thing to do, to forgive those who murdered my family. There as I leave, walk out of the courtroom, there was a peace that just came over me. I knew that God was going to do great things. There was just something about letting that hatred go, that, that bitterness. When I walked out of that courtroom, it was like it was, I could see the sky bluer than it had ever been before. I could hear the birds singing. The flowers were in bloom. It was like for a whole solid year, my life was black and white. A day, two days later, I get a phone call from a reporter from our local East Texas News, good Christian lady. I'd done a story with her before the trial. 
She said, do you remember in the courtroom there was a cameraman standing with his camera as I was sitting? I said, I remember. She said, this man professed to be an atheist, said he believes there's no God. This is one of many reasons why I believe there's no God, because this man, this, this God would not allow this man to lose his family. There, should, there wouldn't be so much turmoil and trouble in this world if there was a God. But she said that day as I'm forgiving those two young men, she looks and notice there's a tear running down this man's cheek that says there's no God. He bends down very quietly as the court proceedings are coming to a close. And his words were this, wow, wow, there's got to be something about this God you're talking about. How could that man stand there forgive like that as the tears begin to flow down his cheek? Out in the parking lot as they're loading their equipment up, she led him to the Lord in the parking lot. I say there is power in forgiveness, folks. There is power in forgiveness. I'm here to say also there is power in prayer. I want to say that God loves you this morning. I want to share with you before I close a... Um, Matthew wrote this two months before he died. He said, in my life there was an event that changed my life for the good. And every day I'm glad I chose to do that. That was the day I gave my heart to the Lord. He said, I was seven years old when I took that very important step. He said, I remember the date, what day of the week it was. But more importantly, I remember how I felt. It changed my life. Without me doing that, I don't know what my life would have turned out to be. But every day I thank God for my parents. But more importantly, for my salvation. You see, Matthew got it right. He knew the most important decision of this life and the life to come was Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to this morning, if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, today could be that day. I am so thankful for the, those who prayed for me, those who were there for me. I believe in the power of prayer, folks. And that concludes me this morning to my last story, and I'm going to close. It's about a little marble that I carry around with me. Years ago when I was working with our youth, I gave them marbles. I said, I want you to take a marble and I want you to put somebody's name on that and let that represent somebody that's lost or somebody that's hurting or whatever that need is. You put it in your pocket or your purse and every time you find that little marble, it'll make you stop and think and you'll pray. This went on for a while and a month or two went by. We had a testimony service break out in the church one Sunday night. The adults were standing up testifying different things. And all of a sudden, one of my youth stood up in the back of the church. I got to testify. He began to share, had his little marble. He said, this represented one of my lost classmates who had been going through a rough time. And I led him to the Lord. And the church began to shout and hallelujah, amen. Another youth stood up with a marble, began to testify. You see, the power wasn't in that marble. The power was in the prayer. Revival broke out in our church, folks. I want to take you back to my property now. Not long after I found that page, I was going through, just kind of kicking through the ashes. And I looked down, I find this marble sitting there, just as clean and shiny as you see it there. It was as if somebody placed it there. And I picked that up. I said, this marble is going to represent Aaron. And I fell on my knees once again and fell on those ashes and began to cry for my daughter. God, she's lost. God, save her. God, she's going away for a long time. Would you do a work in her life? God, I can't be there for her, but God, will you be there for her? God, you promised when you gave her to me, you're going to do great things. I, I want to have hope that you'll do things in her life. Before she was sentenced to, sent to prison, I was going to visit her one last time there at the jail. And as I'm going through the metal detector, I'm emptying my pocket, and out falls that little marble. And it begins to roll down the hallway of that jail, and I go chasing my little marble like a little child would. And, and it goes under a doorway, and I go to open the door, and it's locked. I begin to panic. That was my only connection to my daughter, Erin. And I, and I couldn't get it, and I couldn't see, and I could feel the presence of somebody behind me. And I looked, and it was one of the female guards named Miss Katrina. Miss Katrina said, Mr. Caffey, Mr. Caffey, what's wrong? I said, Miss Katrina, I've lost my marble. And <laughs> I knew that was coming because she's kind of snickered too. And I'm thinking, this is not funny. But as I'm on my hands and knees saying I've lost my marble, I'm looking up at her. I'm thinking, this don't look good. <laughs> I'm brushing myself off. Oh, I'm sorry. And I begin to share, her, share with her that marble about the marble, what it represented. Miss Katrina, being the black spiritual Pentecostal woman she was, she wrapped me up in her arms. She prayed heaven down that day. I'd never had church like that before, folks. We had church in the hallway of that jail. She said, I'll go get the key. We'll get your marble and come. I'll get it for you. She come back and said, I'm so sorry. The person that has that key won't be back until Monday. 
Monday morning, I'm waiting to get my marble. There I grab my marble and out I go. I get in my truck, I start the engine, I'm about to back up, and I realize Aaron's in that jail somewhere. I put it in park and I hold this marble tight in my hands and I begin to pray for my daughter like I never prayed before. God save her. God do a work in her life. I'm here to say God answers prayers. God answers prayers. She is now saved. She is leading a ministry team in the prison, leading girls to the Lord. I wish I had another hour I could sit here and share stories with you that would give you goosebumps. God is doing great things. I'm here to say God answers prayers. Now this marble has a whole new prayer. They say that they gave her two lives and 25. If she comes home, she'll be 59 years old. If she comes home. I said, no, she's coming home. God has shared that with my heart. That's been my prayer that she'll get to come home. I can't go into it too much this morning because it's legal issues, and I'm told by my, her lawyer that we're kind of out of gag order. But they're looking into her case. There's hope for Aaron. I tell you, she's coming home. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're hurting, I'm here to say that God loves you and he wants to heal you from that hurt. That he loves you and he cares about you this morning. And maybe you have hate and anger in your heart this morning. I want to say this morning, give it to the Lord. God loves you. I want to have you stand with me this morning, if you will. As the music's playing softly. I'm going to have a, I have a bowl of marbles here with me this morning. I haven't lost all my marbles, got a few. And I'm just going to place them right here. And maybe during this time of invitation, maybe you would like to come and get a marble. Maybe there's somebody you'd like to pray for. But before I do, I want to share this last thought with you. It's, it's a prayer, actually. It's called, and you may have heard it, the prayer of St. Francis. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled, but as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. This morning as the music plays, I will be up here if you need somebody to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Pastor Shane is here. But this morning, will you come? Would you be willing to come and get a marble? Would you be come and just... Say, God, I'm hurting. God, I've tried it my way, but I can't do it anymore. God, I turn it over to you. Maybe there's those who say, God, I just, I've never accepted you as my Savior. I don't have that personal relationship uh, with you. I know of God, but I don't know God. There's 18 inches between heaven and hell, 18 inches. They say there's 18 inches from the head to the heart. You can believe here, but listen, you got to have it here. Listen, I'm so thankful for where God has brought me. I'm now remarried. I've adopted some children. We had a baby boy together. Named him Ryan Paul after my two sons. Guess what? I got another baby boy on the way. God is good, folks. God is good. So this morning, as the music plays, will you come? Will you come this morning?